electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Homes.com knows that when it comes to home shopping, it's never just about the house or condo. It's about the home. And what makes a home is more than just the house or property. It's the location and neighborhood. If you have kids, it's also schools, nearby parks, and transportation options. That's why Homes.com goes above and beyond to bring home shoppers the in-depth information they need to find the right home. And when I say in-depth, I'm talking deep. Each listing features comprehensive information about the neighborhood, complete with a video guide. They also have details about local schools with test scores, state rankings, and student-to-teacher ratio. They even have an agent directory with the sales history of each agent. So when it comes to finding a home, not just a house, this is everything you need to know, all in one place. Homes.com. We've done your homework. My mission is simple, to make you money. I'm here to level the playing field for all investors. There's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to help you find it. Mad Money starts now. Hey, I'm Kramer. Welcome to Mad Money. Welcome to Kramerica. Other people make friends, just trying to help you make some money. My job is not just to entertain, but to educate and teach you. So call me at 1-800-743-CBC or tweet me at Jim Kramer. And we do not know how things will play out in Ukraine. Although the positive chatter about peace talks sure did help propel the averages, Dow gaining 338 points, S&P rising 1.23%, and then NASDAQ jumping in out of control 1.84%, with pretty much every speculative stock leading the way. But a gain is a gain. Now, I want to be optimistic about the negotiations in Ukraine, but Vladimir Putin is not a trustworthy person. For all we know, the news that Russia is pulling out of Kiev may be a total misdirection play. He's in that area. Who knows how far he went? There are many positive breaks in Putin's long war against Chechnya, too. But he still ended up leveling its capital, Grozny. More likely, if Russia's withdrawing troops from anywhere, it's only because they're getting their butts kicked. Nevertheless, let's talk about what's happened since last week, when the legendary Larry Williams told us on Mad Money that the stock market could be off to a big run because the S&P 500 had just retraced 50% of its decline since November. So far, Larry's been very right, pretty much as always. A few weeks ago, at the height of the gloom, I came out here and started to remind you about what could go right. What were the possibilities that an oversold market could really give us a good rally? I said you had to imagine the unimaginable. You had to be thinking maybe there could be a genuine bull run. It seemed fanciful then but looks oh so reasonable in retrospect. Of course, one reason it seemed fanciful is that nobody ever rakes the bears over the coals for scaring you away from great opportunities. And yet that seems to be by their nature. You see, they're a lot bolder than the bulls, and they never get called out, so why not? So let's look at everything the bearish conventional wisdom got wrong, starting with myself, because I'm not immune to this stuff either. I had come to believe the hype about the great Russian war machine. I thought Putin had restored his army to its Soviet glory days. 
If those stories were true, then Ukraine, which has a fraction of the men and machines of Russia, would have lost the war weeks ago. Now Putin made a series of terrible judgments when he kicked off his invasion, not the least of them accusing Ukraine's Jewish president of being a neo-Nazi stooge. That may have been a sign of early onset senility, or he's a Holocaust denier. Either way, it was a sign that Putin puts way too much faith in his own propaganda. But while the denazification thing was insane, Putin was hardly alone in dismissing Zelensky as a lightweight, a former comedian who got elected mostly because he had already played the role of president on a sitcom. So Zelensky was a long shot to be as good as he is, and the Russian army turned out to be a long shot to be as incompetent as they are. Now that we hear Putin wants to back off from Kiev, you've got to wonder, what's next? Does he want to move all his troops to, to the east and break Ukraine in two? East Germany, West Germany? I think that would be a style, though it remains to be seen how much territory Russia can keep. He can then declare victory, but at this point, any negotiated settlement is a victory not for him, but for the West. A stalemate makes Putin into a weak leader, and that kind of thing is lethal when you're in the strongman business. Of course, just a few weeks ago, Russia was a sideshow for our stock market. The main event was the Federal Reserve, specifically all the Fed chroniclers who told us that j Powell would kill the economy even by now in order to stamp out inflation. Sure, that's still a possibility, but do you mind if we just try to make some money while or before it? How about before it happens? That's right. We had a big bad event a couple weeks ago when the Fed laid out an onerous path. But after an initial dip, that's when the market started roaring back because the Fed's rate hikes had been well telegraphed. We just needed to get it over with. Now, many of the big name strategists then warned us that the Fed might be ushering in a bear market, which makes me wonder where the heck have these guys been for the last four months? The Fed ushered in a bear market in November. It's astounding to me that highly paid professionals went out of their way to caution you about something so far in the rearview mirror. We've been talking about that since November right here, that the bear market was here, unless you made a lot of money for your company but doing real things and returning the money to shareholders. It's just going to be a bear, and it has been. If anything, businesses in this country welcome higher interest rates because inflation is eating them alive. If the Fed could break the upward spiral of price increases, then companies would have better margins. They wouldn't need to rely on endless price hikes to sell their stuff and deliver good earnings growth, which is just, in the end, ruinous for them. Of course, the biggest weapon against the bulls was the possibility of an inverted, whoa, oh, just a second, an inverted yield curve. (laughs) Where short-term rates cross above long terms, which is supposed to forecast, if not presume, a recession, so you had to get out of stocks immediately. (laughs) Holy cow, is that wrong? An inverted yield curve may be a bad sign, but it's one of those things that's predicted 12 of the last six recessions. Do you mind being more accurate than that? There's even debates about if and when and how or if we had one at all or did it happen at 2 o'clock or maybe it was last week. Now, maybe it was last night. Now, if you missed it, well, one of the things that you know is you're not going to get lost in the 2 and 10 Wally world on this show. Then there's the hand-wringing about earnings. While I try to discourage short-term trading, the earnings calendar simply wasn't in favor of the bears, as no stinkers reported. In this CNBC Investing Club, we teach you that one of the most important elements of managing your own money is getting a great cost basis. This is not talked about much at all. The average price you paid for your stock. Most of the problems I see in investing often stem from getting a bad basis, buying too high, which regularly leads for many people to selling too low. I want to produce the opposite results, which is why I'm always preaching about the need for discipline. Earnings won't be perfect, 
People found Fort McCormick today and at one point Lulu tonight. But the stock of Adobe got crushed last week on its quarter. And have you noticed that it's now higher than when it reported the so-called awful quarter that I told you I liked? Which leads me to uh, one more giant grievance that I have against those who scared you into selling you the lows or kept you on the sidelines. Not only did they rely on Fed speak as well as doom and gloom talk, they even became selective chartists. At the worst moments, they put up the fabled death cross pattern, where the short-term 50-day moves above the average of 200. Another thing that's not a good sign, but the name sounds so much worse than the reality death cross. I mean, who doesn't want to talk about that? Now, this death cross came at the exact time when Larry Williams, who's a historian, told me that if the S&P can bounce authoritatively, in other words, that a 50% retracement of the previous decline, if we got that, then the market would be off to the races. He pointed out that we've seen this pattern 21 times since 1929. 21 out of 21. It's produced a longer-term rally than everybody thought. Now it's looking like 22. Plus, we had that oscillator I used, the one from Standard & Poor's, and extremely oversold levels. I have a doctrinaire approach to this indicator when it's too negative. You have to hold your nose and buy something because it means the market's a coiled spring. We've got an incredibly negative reading at the bottom, and it turned out to be an incredible buying opportunity. Unfortunately, that same oscillator hit a very positive number today. You should check my investment club morning meeting uh, that I do with Jeff Marks if you want to know more. My discipline says it's time to pull in your horns a bit, especially after just the completely insane amount of speculative buying we saw today. We've been scaling back a bit for the Chapel Trust, although we still want to buy some stocks after the oscillator uh, settles down. But we're chiefly interested in the oils and the agricultural names, which have been hit by Putin's promises. The bottom line, you know, when I was a little boy, I saw this wonderful Broadway show, Promises, Promises, with the late Jory Orbach. You may remember him from Law and Order. Unlike Broadway's Promises and Promises, Putin's promises are made to be broken. Jerry in California. Jerry! Jim, big time West Coast, booyah to ya. Can't get bigger than that, frankly, I have to tell you. Maybe or, or maybe Lululemon's goal, uh, gain after the close. But anyway, good to talk to you. What's up? So I took your advice. I named my dog after the best dog in the portfolio. My dog is named Snowflake. Tell me, do I have a good dog, a bad dog? Do I sell my well, dog? You know, most Can I dog- keep my dog? Can I no, keep my no, dog? No, your dog, only your dog has to live long. And it will prosper. Uh, not to mix my metaphors too much, but uh, Snowflake's going to take a little while. But you've heard Fred Slubin, Fra- Frank Slubin. I was thinking about Fred Smith. Frank Slubin is going to win. Okay, he will win. So I want your dog to have a long and happy life, and I think it will because its name is Snowflake. Right? Putin's promises are made to be broken. On Mad tonight, FedEx CEO Fred Smith is stepping down to become executive chair. He's going to be chairman of FedEx, and I'm discussing his tenure and what the future could hold for the company with the man himself, an icon. Then Kramerica knows this is the year of real products and real profits. So I'll reveal a beaten down stock that fits our criteria, and you'll want to buy it. And McCormick is caught in the crosshairs of inflation. I'm learning how the seasoning's kingpin is working to fight those headwinds with the company's top brass. So stay with Kramer. Don't miss a second of Mad Money. Follow at Jim Kramer on Twitter. Have a question? Tweet Kramer. Hashtag Mad Tweets. Send Jim an email to madmoney at cnbc.com or give us a call at 1-800-743-CNBC. Miss something? Head to madmoney.cnbc.com. Fact. Running a business is not getting easier on your wallet. With higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. Also a fact. 
Smart businesses are reducing costs and headaches by graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. Accessed from anywhere. You can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. See how you'll profit with NetSuite, and then you can think of all the ways you could be spending the money you save. Company retreated in Malibu, anyone? By popular demand, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to NetSuite.com to start saving. When you're hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging to connect with candidates faster. Plus, 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. Join more than three and a half million businesses worldwide that use Indeed. Listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash madmoney. Just go to Indeed.com slash madmoney right now and support this show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash madmoney. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's the end of an era at FedEx. Last night we learned that Fred Smith, the founder, chairman, and CEO, would be transitioning to executive chairman and passing the CEO baton to his current president, chief operating officer, and old hand, Raj Shubramanian, at the beginning of June. Now, it is no exaggeration to say that Smith is a legendary figure in the history of all American business. He started the original Federal Express nearly 50 years ago and built into a global powerhouse worth more than $60 billion. He did it. I think a lot of you might be surprised that it's not even 50 years old because it's already such an institution in your life. Of course, Smith's sticking around and his successor's an old hand. But this is still a watershed moment for this great company and the perfect chance to reflect on how far they've come. So let's take a closer look with Fred Smith, the founder, chairman, and outgoing CEO of FedEx, soon to be executive chairman. Mr. Smith, congratulations on a well-deserved semi-retirement and welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, thanks for having me. Now, Fred, I've got to tell you, there are not many people I can look at and say, I cannot believe you came up with a verb that we all use. We say FedEx, even if we're not using FedEx. Did you ever expect that would happen when you started this company? Of course not. It uh, was simply we ran in front of a big parade, as Pogo the Possum said, and became a great leader. The demand for our services was just uh, enormous. But there were doubters even from the day when you wrote a term paper about it, weren't there? Well, there were, Jim, but I had three separate marketing studies that was, were very conclusive about the demand. And to this day, what people misunderstand, just as they misunderstood 50 years ago last April, building networks is hard, and you have to put a lot of expense up front before you've got anything to sell. You wouldn't be very interested in a telephone company that could only let you talk to 25 states and no addresses overseas. 
So just as we were doing then, we're doing today with a tremendous network build out, but now mostly for B2C as opposed to B2B in those days. Well, I know that it ended up being perfect for the uh, for the digitized e-commerce. But I remember we first started talking when uh, I was on uh, Larry Kudlow. We were talking to you as an economist. But I'd like to hear with this debate that we hear about wealth in Washington. How many millionaires have you created in your time? (laughs) Well, I hope a lot. But much more importantly to me, just the way I look at the world, it's our blue collar folks that I'm very proud of the jobs and the benefits and the promotional opportunities we provided for hundreds of thousands of them. And if we've created some millionaires along the way, well, so much the better. Now, I also consider you very much a maverick. I mean, look, you tried Zapcom, which, I, by the way, I liked Zap, Zapmail. I thought Zapmail was good. You have decided to go to Europe where, frankly, having have some time in Europe where I have a business in Europe, they don't like to think like we do. They don't think <laughs> it's got to be there right now. You're never daunted by challenges, are you, sir? Well, you got to remember, Jim, going back to the network question, we really have two peer competitors. Sometimes people get mixed up at what our competitive ecosphere really is. It's UPS, which is a company which was founded 66 years before we ever started Federal Express, and DHL, which evolved out of the German Postal Service owned by the German government. So when you have networks which you have to compete against, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, you have to have as big a network as the competitor. And we were under strength in Europe, and we made an acquisition, which has been a long, arduous uh, process. But just last night, coincidentally, we integrated after a four-year building of our new CDG hub in Paris, the legacy TNT air operations and the Federal Express or FedEx Express operations just last night. Well, then perhaps in some ways it, it, it is a good time to step up to executive chairman because you have on every quarter been very frank about how Europe is not where you want it. Maybe it's time to give up because you've got it where you want it. <laughs> well, uh, look, Jim, FedEx is a company that, that's run by a team of executives I've never been an individual shouting orders from the bridge. We try to get consensus, and then we give our strategies and plans to a very strong, and I might add diverse, independent board of directors, and then we execute those uh, strategies. So we're very confident in our strategies, and we're going to show a lot of those that we haven't really showcased uh, in the last uh, couple of years for very good competitive reasons at our investors and lenders meeting in late June. Okay, now I know that David Faber on my morning show mentioned, look, there may have been some activists involved here. Uh, They would probably say, well, wait a second, corporate governance certainly improved uh, because you split the chairman and the CEO. I I haven't heard of the activists. I mean, if you can tell me if there were activists circling, but it's never been clear to me. Well, listen, I I watch you every morning. I have you and uh, Bloomberg and Fox Business News in my office on every morning. So I've heard David say that, but 95% of the information I have about that comes from him. But having said that, look, we're not the smartest uh, men and women in the room. If anybody's got an idea, we'll take a look at it. Our shareholders 
talked to Raj and Mike Lentz and in the past more with me. So um, there was no uh, activist impetus. We had planned to do this at our June meeting, board meeting for announcement at the shareholders meeting. But it just appeared to me after I reviewed it, we should put Raj fully in charge because our fiscal year begins June the 1st. Mm -hmm. Now he's got two months to finish the business plan, and it's his business plan. Yeah, and he did great. On the, he's always done great on the conference call. When I mm -hmm. look at you, sir, I think maybe the next thing that has to happen, maybe Raj has to do it. it you got to go driverless as much as you can, correct? I mean, <laughs> you just have to be driverless and you have to be electronic, maybe to cut pollution. Aren't those the two challenges that Raj may face? Well, Jim, we've had for a number of years, again, some things we haven't touted, but you'll see in late June, an enormous effort towards autonomous trucks that move over the highway, not in the city where we think our drivers are better for the pickup and delivery of the long-distance uh, 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 vehicles. But uh, we call it ALFI. That's an acronym, but uh, we're a long way down the road to doing that, but we're not going to get rid of our drivers. They'll do the pickup and delivery and the, the drayage, if you will, and over time, I'm very confident autonomous trucks are on the way. Okay, now I know you as a straight shooter, and I've seen you say, look, we have to have a relationship with China. We just have to. Uh, you've probably been among two or three companies that really have been able to uh, do business with China in a profitable and good way. Where are we with China and where should we be? Well, the relationship is, is very tough. I believe very strongly in uh, Secretary of State Cordell Hull's remark when he began the opening up of the United States to trade after the First World War in 1934 with President Roosevelt that when goods cross borders, armies rarely do. Now, that's not always true, but I think it's a lot better that the United States and China are trading on an appropriate basis, maybe some things need to be restricted. So we need to work towards uh, a harmonious relationship with China, not in get involved in this kinetic warfare that you're seeing so tragically in Ukraine. And as you know, I have some experience in that regard. I know you do. And, uh, I want to thank you for serving for both military, serving for the people, that for your shareholders. You've always known that they're your boss. If there's one thing that you could have go next in FedEx, because we want to have CEOs have great transitions, what should Raj be thinking about? Well, first of all, you should know, uh, Jim, since my earliest days, because of my military experience, we've had formal succession plans. And when Raj took over as COO in 2019, I told the board then, and this is in my message to our team members today, that he should be my successor as CEO and we should move to a non-executive chairman because that's the corporate governance model that's preferred by most of the, of the funds. And uh, so that's exactly what we, we did. The only thing that I did, as I said a moment ago, was I accelerated it to two months before the end of right. the fiscal year rather than at the June meeting. So we've been working on this a, a long time, and every FedEx officer has to have two successors named.
Well, look, I want to congratulate you on, on an incredible and iconic career. I know you got a ne- I know that there's a next chapter coming, and I sure hope you'll think about us on Mad Money, because we always think about you when it comes to respect, to iconic development, and to just treating people right, which is what you've always done. Thank you, sir. You're very kind, Jim. Thank you very much. That's Fred Smith, founder, chairman, CEO, and icon, Federal Express, FDX. Mad Money's back in for Coming up, find out why Kramer is bullish on this outdoor beast. Next. You seek the key, but first, you must learn the ways of precision, craft, and performance with Acura's all-electric ZDX. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system up to a 313-mile range and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is their most powerful SUV yet. Unlock the energy when you visit Acura.com to order yours today. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Ettinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts. Sure. I mean, today was crazy. All the everything went up. The stuff that are really going crazy was the stuff that's kind of like the Kathy Wood names that don't have earnings. But when you take a step back and look at the market wide pullback we've seen since November, it is clear that a ton of stocks deserve to come down like the ones that rally today, frankly. But the selling has been so indiscriminate that it's also created some incredible buying opportunities of solid companies. You just need to know where to look. For every formerly high-flying IPO or former SPAC stock with no earnings and no products, there are a couple of real companies with actual earnings that have seen their stocks get unfairly punished, if not pummeled. Ever since the market stabilized, we've been picking through the rubble for you to identify these potential winners that are now trading at very deep discounts. In particular, you've got a number of growth names that used to have sky-high priced earnings multiples. Remember, on earnings, not sales. But thanks to recent carnage, they've now got much more reasonable valuations. We've already spotted some nice short-term winners in this, like that Exponential Fitness, uh, Platika Holdings. Remember that Holly? Boy, that was good. That Holly, you know, that's that one that tricked out all of us. But tonight I've got a new one for you. And you probably have one at home, maybe your garage, maybe in your kitchen. Yeti. Yeti Holdings. The maker of high-performance outdoor products, including coolers and drinkware. Basically, everything you need for a tailgate party or a camping trip or, if you're like me, fishing and hunting. This is a stock that we've liked for a long time. But it's been put through the meat grinder thanks to the Fed-mandated sell-off and all things growth, which came in November. From its peak back in November, like so many other companies, to its lows a little over a month ago, Yeti was cut in half. Look at this, right? Fell from 108 and change to 54. So now, I mean, here, of course, people are scared to death of it. Here they were all excited about it. Well, isn't that typical? We know it's gotten too, you know, it, it got too cheap in late February because it had begun to rebound, but not much. You're not really, you've actually really missed anything. Uh, including because it had a 7% run today. But even here, it's still down more than 40% from its highs, which is what I care about. Now, I bring this one up because just last Tuesday, we got a call from a fellow named Charlie in Georgia who wanted to know if Yeti was worth owning. And I said something offhandedly about how I like the story, but you deserve more than that. So the, the thought stuck with us. 
So I decided to circle back and give you a more rigorous look at what's going on here because you deserve that. First, you need to know that this is a company with a terrific track record. Its stock didn't really take off until spring of 2020 when investors embraced the great outdoors because it was the only way to safely interact with other people during the early days of the pandemic. However, even before catching fire, Yeti, the company, was remarkably consistent. Since coming public in late 2018, they haven't missed a single quarter, even though it was shorted heavily the whole way, by the way. Just an unbroken string of top and bottom line beats. And the main reason? Yeti's got a great brand. More on that in a minute. They invested heavily in the direct-to-consumer business, partially cutting out the retail middleman, which gives us a nice boost to their margins. By the way, that's the Nike model. Nike keeps going up. Have you seen that? Even though Yetis continue to put up excellent numbers, this is still a growth stock that had a mammoth run in 2020 and 2021. Hence this, okay? By the time it peaked in November, the darn thing was selling for more than 40 times earnings. That was unjustified. It was pretty expensive for a company that makes different kinds of coolers. Once the Federal Reserve signaled that it would get tough on inflation, Yeti got crushed, along with nearly every other growth stock with a high-priced earnings multiple. And that's how you get a 50% decline from peak to trough. But unlike the unprofitable price to sales names that I've been warning you away from for what feels like ages, although I give them their due, they rally today. The great thing about stocks that are too pricey on an earnings basis, not a sales basis, is that they get cheaper as they go down. Yeti's now a heck of a lot cheaper than it was four months ago. And make no mistake, the decline here was entirely about growth stocks going out of style. Not anything that happened at Yeti. You see something get cut in half, it snaps, we'll assume that the company did something wrong, right? But that is not the case with, this, with, with Yeti. Not at all. When we go dumpster diving to find some rare winners for you, we want broken stocks of intact companies, not broken stocks with broken companies. In other words, the underlying business needs to be sound before I'm going to come out here and tell you it's worth buying. Yeti is perfectly sound. When they reported in November, they delivered a textbook beat and raise, but the stock sold off because the market had suddenly turned hostile in the whole growth cohort. Fast forward to mid-February when Yeti delivered its most recent results. This time they gave you a modest top and bottom line beat. However, management's earnings forecast came in a little bit weaker than expected. They talked about making 282 to 286 per share, and the analysts were looking for something closer to 294. The problem? Like so many consumer companies, Yeti's struggling with rising costs, input costs, freight costs, even some Trumpier tariffs that remain in place and are taking a bite out of the company's earnings power. All realistic. But in response, a bunch of analysts took this moment as an opportunity to slash the price targets after the stock had already experienced a massive decline. Their herd-like behavior created the impression that Yeti somehow disappointed. In reality, though, most analysts simply hate to change their price targets on no news, even when the stock is in question is experienced an extreme move. They felt the need to play catch-up with the market. We've seen that over and over again in this earnings period. But because they, they, they kind of want to seem serious, if not rigorous, they waited for the quarter to give themselves cover. And then Yeti bottomed a week later. So they cut their price targets. In. Oh, look at that. They cut their price targets in numbers right here. And then, oh, geez, I'm sorry. Oh, geez. And then let me just erase that. They cut right here is when they, they decided, you know what? Yeti is no longer any good. And that's your opportunity to show this other terrific picture that I was just writing on, which I think really tells you everything you need to know. Cheap stock. See? Mind meld with the next this is this is called a, a streeter or something. Stretter, I don't know. So what's I, this is a graphic. So what's the thesis here? First, last time we talked to the fabulous Adrian Shapira, and I don't know if you remember, she's the queen of retail, about how you need to be more selective with these consumer-oriented stocks because the winners here need strong brands that can get out with raising prices, which, by the way, they're doing with Beekman, and they're doing that with Nest. Uh, and, and I've got to tell you, I, I think that Herschel is the bargain of the group. Herschel reminds me of these guys. Uh, they do some something very similar. 
But I've got to tell you, I think Yeti fits the bill for all sorts of things. They put through some modest price increases over this year, and some analysts argue that they've got more room to raise pricing if cost inflation continues to be a problem. Yeti's still on track to take a margin hit this year, but the gross margin, what they make after the cost of goods sold, is still up substantially versus 2019. That's all you can ask for, and that was the last normal year before the pandemic. They're doing what they can. Coming out with new products, some of which I really love, expanding overseas, continuing to push direct to consumer. I don't know if you have their new one. I mean, it's incredible. I just love it. It's a little too heavy for me. That's why my wife lifts it. Baconator. Anyway, second, this is second. This is the right time of year for Yeti. The stock tends to experience a seasonal rally in the second and third quarters as people emerge from hibernation and start doing things outdoors. They cook, they grill, and they put a lot of beer in here. Third, Yeti's gotten ridiculously cheap, trading 21 times this year's earnings, less than 18 times next year's numbers. Think about that. Historically, this thing tends to tell for 31 times earnings. Now you're getting it 18 times next year's. The last time Yeti was this cheap, April of 2020, before it embarked on an epic 18-month rally. Now, we know it's cheap because a little over a month ago, management announced a $100 million buyback, which will last through next February. That's about 2% of the share count. It's not nothing. Yeti believes that stock is undervalued, and they've got the financial flexibility to put their money where their mouth is. At the time, it was at 61, which is exactly where it is today. That's my favorite sign of confidence. All right, there's one fly in the ointment. I recently went to my local Ollie's bargain store and saw a bunch of knockoff Chinese thermoses. They were called like Eddie. I mean, it's unbelievable. But they were the split, spitting image of my Yeti. But when it comes to keeping things hot, you cannot mess around. You have to get Yeti. And I'm not taking a knockoff, even if I am indeed a proud conscript into Ollie's army. Here's the bottom line. When the market finds its footing after brutal decline, which I think it's doing right now, you want to look for potential opportunities in previously expensive stocks that have suddenly become a lot cheaper. Just remember our monster. We want real companies with real products and real profits that they can return to shareholders via dividends or buybacks. And that's Yeti Holdings. Not a lot of the stuff that went up today, okay? Today was pure froth. It doesn't hurt that this stock is coming at the ideal time for the cooking and camping season. How about we go to Henry in California? Henry! Booyah, Jim. Booyah, Henry. Loving those chips and guac on Smith Street, by the way. Don't you love? Oh, man. Okay, thank you. Thank you very much. Don't forget to have the $7 Pacifico. I mean, the Pacifico. All right, go ahead. So my question revolves around a company that's been crushed in the previous days. Although revenue is expected to decline, the company maintains a low multiple, yields a strong dividend, and is repurchasing up to $1.2 billion worth of stock. What are your thoughts on Foot Locker now that the Nike CEO confirms they will maintain a partnership? They, I know they confirmed it, and I know the stock can bounce, and I thank you for going to the restaurant. But, Henry, here's my concern. They're not getting the best Jordans, and the best Jordans are being given by, to the direct consumer. That's why I want you to buy the stock of Nike itself. Let's not get a stock that looks cheap. Let's buy a stock with great growth, and that is Nike. Remember, we want real companies with real products and real profits, hence Nike, that they return to shareholders and dividends and buybacks, and I would include Yeti. And you can tell right here when it bottomed, that was right here, which is now, so you can buy it. Much more may have money at, including my exclusive with McCormick. Could a dash of the stock bring the heat to your portfolio? I'm checking in with the CEO. Then AMC CEOs embrace its shareholders, and I'll reveal another entertainment company that I think should take a page out of his book, and it's going to just drive you nuts. And the winner calls rapid fire in tonight's edition of the Lightning Round. So stay with Kramer.
Is it time to pile into the defensive recession-resistant stocks that thrive if the Fed raises interest rates too aggressively and therefore sends us into a real slowdown, which was the talk of the bond market today. Well, that need, that's the question you need to ask yourself about McCormick, the maker of spices, sauces, and seasonings for all consumers, wherever they are, restaurants, food services, home. Here's a stock that shot up to a new all-time high of $107 and change earlier this month. Everyone was terrified, although it since has pulled back to under 97 today. As Wall Street's maybe feeling a little more sanguine about the future, that includes a small decline today after McCormick reported what I thought was a very solid quarter. Modest top and bottom line beat, in part because management didn't raise their full-year forecast. There's some real reasons why I think it was right that they didn't. But I think it's a great opportunity, both because the company's a classic defensive name and because I think there's been a permanent shift in the way we eat. A lot more people cooking at home. Don't take it from me. Let's check in with Lawrence Curtius. He's the chairman and CEO of McCormick. to get a better read on the quarter and what comes next. Mr. Curtius, welcome back to Mad Money. Jim, it's great to be here with you. And this is an exciting week for McCormick. We, of course, had our earnings call today. We have our annual shareholder meeting tomorrow morning. Well, I guess at your annual shareholder meeting, you'll be talking about the issues that really matter, about diversity, about ESG, about how your company is really one of the great citizens of our time. Absolutely. But we'll also be talking about the growing demand for flavor and uh, how that demand for flavor remains strong. I I heard your opening remarks and uh, you couldn't be more right. You know, uh, one thing that is going to be consistent in good economic times or bad uh, pandemic or no pandemic is that uh, that consumers like to eat tasty foods. And in many ways, uh, when when times get tough, uh, flavor actually does better as consumers trade down to less expensive cuts of meat or, or, or try to stretch their grocery budget, you know, well, flavor plays a bigger role than ever. It, it makes sense. Flank steak is double what it was last month, last year, this month, double. So I would rather have a trade down steak and have it tenderized or with one of your great uh, flavorizers, so to speak, because it's Adarines, which I love from uh, New Orleans, uh, and not have to change my habits. But I'll tell you one thing. One habit that has changed, Lawrence, people would rather dine in and buy their liquor at a liquor store than dine out and pay 15 to 22 dollars for a craft martini. Well, I can't help you there. Um, <laughs> I will say, though, that, you know, uh, you know, well, restaurants have reopened and you know, consumers are no longer locked down and forced to eat at home. You know, it's, as with this inflation that the consumer is facing and, and you know, the real risk that there might be some economic slowdown because of Fed action, um, you know, the consumer is going to be under uh, some amount of pressure and dining out is expensive. Um, and, and, Jim, you're a restaurant owner yourself. You know that restaurant costs have gone up. Uh, you know, labor in restaurants has gone up. And, and that has affected menu prices. And, and eating at home is more economical. Well, look, I, I, the, to your left, to our viewers' right, are a series of hot sauces that were special to what I thought to my Mexican restaurant. Part of the reason why I thought we could pay, uh, get people to pay a little bit extra. And uh, there they are there. And at home, they're a fraction of the cost than what I try to get them for at a restaurant. So I got to go experiential. But you used to not be able to get the quality at home that you are giving people right now. Well, I appreciate that, Jim. You know, um, consumers are really trying to recreate restaurant experiences at home. Uh, you know, the repertoire of the of, of the average person cooking at home is much broader than it used to be. 
And, you know, the one thing about the pandemic lockdown, people got a lot of practice cooking and somebody at home got really good at it. And usually somebody found out that they liked it uh, a lot and that uh, it's not just the meal itself, but the whole experience of making the meal has become, you know, something that uh, families can get together around and have have some fun. Uh, But, you know, even for consumers who are interested in convenience, you know, they've gotten all kinds of new appliances in their homes, like, you know, air fryers and instant pots. And uh, and we're making products that are specifically for those. And don't forget that grilling season is coming up, uh, which is super convenient and super tasty and, you know, really quite economical. Oh, I agree. And it is. I'm hoping it'll be good for for the Clorox people in Kingsford. I know it's good for you guys because you've got some incredible rubs and great barbecue sauce. Now, there's this fly in the ointment that we have to address. It's not just for you, but it's for everybody, um, which is consist- consistent uh, inflation of which you did mention that even the Fed has to take notice of it, of course. But it's this darn transportation thing. And I don't know how you personally, as a great CEO, can solve this transportation issue. Well, you know, personally, we can't. And, and, and transportation is one of the big challenges. Of course, we talked about supply chain disruption last year, and a lot of that was around transportation. You know, ocean freight, a backlog at the ports, you know, a lot of our raw materials do come from you know, more exotic places. I mean, we don't grow a lot of black pepper and vanilla in the United States, and zero. Um, but, uh, and then, uh, and, you know, and then, you know, trucking and freight costs, I'd say this is like the third largest component of inflation for us, you know, the, the raw materials themselves, packaging material, and then, and then, uh, and then freight as well. And, you know, you're right, the costs continue to rise. And, uh, and I think that that's maybe part of the challenge in our first quarter. You know, I'd say that a quarter was right up the middle, you know, demand for flavor, really strong, we're gaining market share, um, you know, uh, But the costs continue to rise and uh, and our pricing actions that we have to take to pass those costs along um, are still lagging cost inflation and really won't catch up until, you know, into the second half of the year. Uh, But uh, but it is that that cost environment is a challenge. Well, if you say uh, second half of the year, we catch up. Is that because of cost of of price increase you put through or do you really think there might be an end in sight to any of this madness? I'm not. I, I'm sure there's an end in sight somewhere, but it's not this year. Um, you know, there's a lot in the in the pipeline right now, um, and so uh, unfortunately, you know, we have to take action to mitigate the costs that we've got visibility to. You know, of course, part of that is to being sharp on on costs ourselves and eliminating discretionary spending where we can. But with the magnitude of the cost increases, a lot of it does have to go through in the form of price increase. I mean, these prices have these costs have to make their way to the consumer. Right. Well, the good news is, is that your stuff, I find, is in terms of uh, value for price, uh, probably the most uh, important thing I can get in a couple of aisles of the supermarket, because that's what you do. You make other stuff that is uh, maybe not as uh, good as we would have liked uh, this time last year. Uh, taste just as good. And I really appreciate everything you do. That's Lawrence Kirchis, chairman, CEO of McCormick, with another fine quarter. Lawrence, thank you so much for coming on the show. Great to be with you. It's right up the middle. All right. May have money back into the break. Coming up, a storm is coming. So give us a call. Kramer's got the answers to all your burning questions. The lightning round is next. It is time. 
rounds of Rackles on the same side of And then the lightning rounds over. Are you ready, Ski? Let's have a John in Connecticut. John. Hi, Jim. It's John from Bethel, Connecticut. Excellent. I waited patiently to buy this stock, and when it fell down under $90, I started scooping some up hand over fist. Talking about FMC. Oh, the old food machinery company. I like FMC. It's in the ag business. The ag stocks are all coming down. And I say, buy them when the rain is coming down. Let's go to Kenneth in New York. Kenneth. Hey, Jim. How you doing? I am doing fine. Thank you, Kenneth, for asking. What's going on? Hey, so I'm looking at this uh, pharmaceutical company called Sigma Technology. And I just want to hear your thoughts on that company. It's actually an inexpensive company that makes money. I don't know. I mean, it seems like I don't understand why it's valued as low as it is. I don't mind inexpensive. Oh, I'm not done. I want Gabriel messages. Gabriel. Hey, booyah, Jim. Booyah, Gabe. I bought this stock in 2020 and recently added to my positions. Last week, they paid a surprise dividend, but the stock is still way down. Looking for your thoughts on Rocket Mortgage. No, because when the Fed raises rates, you can't on Rocket Mortgage, plain and simple. There's just It just doesn't work. Matthew in New Jersey. Matthew! Hey, Jim. Matthew. Hey, Jim. All right, so here's my question. Um, the sector has been beaten down the, the whole last year. Village Farms International, VFF, what do you think? Doesn't make money, so therefore we don't recommend it. That's just, just that simple. And that, ladies and gentlemen, is the conclusion of the Lightning Round! The Lightning Round is sponsored by TD Ameritrade. Come to think of it, we spend way too much time poking fun at Adam Aaron, the CEO of AMC Entertainment, for catering to the apes that legion of self-proclaimed boosters, not all that close friends with me, actually, who bought his stock after he gave them exactly what they wanted, creating a rabid shareholder base. I have some major points of disagreements with the meme stock cohort, as you might know, but we shouldn't look down on CEOs for pandering to their shareholders. That's the job description. When we spoke to Adam yesterday on Squawk on the Street, he, was the, he said the key decision was to start showing love to the individuals who go to the movies, not the big institutional investors who couldn't care less whether his company lives or dies. And believe me, that awful balance sheet AMC would have certainly died if he hadn't course corrected. Aaron's appeal to individual investors allowed him to raise a massive amount of money to pay down debt, hundreds of millions of dollars. If you're running a business, I think a higher stock price based on loyalty is better than a higher stock price based on institutions that are chasing performance, some benchmark. Which brings me to a rather unorthodox idea I thought of while on Squawk on the Street this morning. Maybe it is time for Disney to take a page from the AMC playbook. Disney's CEO seems to have his hands full, and the company's got a host of problems, not of their own making. Everything from COVID hitting the theater and amusement park business to the way in COVID hitting their Disney Plus streaming service. Says it all, doesn't it? Here's my plan. Anyone who can prove they've bought five shares of Disney should get all sorts of perks from the company. Maybe it's a discount on Disney Plus, which they might, which could be found money for the company because the content's a sunk cost. Maybe it's discounts at the theme parks or maybe get in a little bit earlier or at the box office. I don't know, on the cruise ships. 
See, Disney is a company with tremendous brand loyalty, but that doesn't translate into shareholder loyalty because there's not a lot of overlap between the fans and the investors. Why not do some cross-selling to get the customers invested in the stock? I think Adam Aaron is very right that most publicly traded companies love to court big institutions, which are fickle as the wind by nature, while neglecting individual investors who might have had love for them. Say what you will about the self-described apes who won't stop buying AMC. They're loyal. Disney has a much larger fan base and just as loyal, and they can bring in these kinds of individual shareholders. I think they'll be shareholders for life, not sunshine patriot renters. One last thought about the power of individual investors. Yesterday, purely on the rumor of a stock split that would create no real value, Tesla stock gained $84 billion in market capitalization. That was all home gamers because professionals hate that kind of move. If Disney would just show these people the love I'm talking about, even something institutional managers might regard as cosmetic, well, I think it could make a huge difference in the stock price, not unlike what happened right here just yesterday. I like to say there's always a bull market somewhere, and I promise to try to find it just for you right here on Mad Money. I'm Jim Cramer. See you tomorrow. The news with Shepard Smith starts now. CNBC has quick and easy to understand business news updates at the open midday and close every weekday. Markets, money, and more from Wall Street to Main Street. I'm CNBC's Jessica Edinger. Follow and listen to CNBC Business News Updates wherever you get your podcasts.